Welcome to the Climate Finance Podcast. My name is Jonas, and this podcast aims to mainstream climate finance by interviewing high-level investors, researchers, and policymakers who have made significant contributions to the climate finance space. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Climate Finance Podcast. Today, we have Mark Van Baal. Mark Van Baal is the founder of Follow This, with over 7,000 shareholders slash members that engage to pressure oil and gas companies via shareholder resolutions to align themselves towards the Paris climate targets. So welcome, Mark. Thank you so much. Good day to everybody. Thanks for having me. So tell us about your personal slash professional journey from an engineering student to becoming a journalist to eventually becoming a shareholder activist. I will. Thank you. Um, yes, I'm a mechanical engineer. Graduated in uh, in Delft in the Netherlands. After my conscript period in the Navy, I spent around 10 years in companies. One of my jobs was uh, selling refrigeration machines to one of the most polluting industries in the world, the container shipping industry. Then I passed 30 and I thought there must be something more purposeful and more creative to do. And after seeing uh, the movie An Inconvenient Truth of Al Gore in 2006, I decided that the best way I, as a mechanical engineer, could contribute to curbing climate change was to be a journalist. So I became in 2006 a climate and energy journalist, writing down many times how urgent the issue was and also what the solutions were. Looking back to 2006, I I was a bit ashamed that, that I, as a mechanical engineer already for 12 years, never worried about climate change. But at that moment in time, I thought, okay, now I know the problem. Now I know the solution. Now I have to do something about it. So initially as a journalist, but after writing down for the maybe 10 time, all major shell, if you don't change course, this will not only be devastating for your company, but also for the world. Sometimes concluding with Shell, if you don't change now, you will be the Kodak of the 21st century. But Shell didn't listen to me. I was not an influential journalist. And sometimes I thought, okay, my moment of glory will be in 20 years from now when Shell goes bankrupt and I'll be on the nine o'clock news explaining as a retired retired energy journalist how this all happens happened and I could say I told you so but my wife said I'm not going to watch that evening she literally said men who say I told you so are not sexy so I had to think of something else and then I thought okay Shell will not Shell and all the other oil majors it's not about only Shell it's about the whole oil and gas industry and the oil and gas industry will these companies are so powerful they don't have to listen to Greenpeace Friends of the Earth they don't have to listen to journalists They even don't listen to most of the governments. They're more powerful than most governments. So the only people who can make them change course are their shareholders, their owners. And I thought the shareholders, these are, many of them are pension funds. They're all talking about a sustainable future, making sure their members retire in a decent world and that the money is still there. So I thought I need to rely big investors behind the idea that the oil industry should change. And I had to start somewhere, so I started with Shell in 2015. Thank you for the great introduction. So from 2015 until 2021, 
How did you start follow this? How did you recruit the initial members, draft the shareholder resolutions? And uh, what was the re reception and how has it progressed along the years? Yeah, by the end of 2014, beginning of 2015, I decided, okay, the only way to get this off the ground is by a grassroots organization. Of course, I approached big investors saying, okay, shall we together file a shareholder resolution? They were not used to it. They said, we do engagement. We talk to the oil majors. We have very good conversation. We slowly steer them in the right direction. And if you would ask, what do you discuss with them? They said, no, this is confidential. You better have confidential conversations to get results. So if you have an idea like this, I think the only way to start this is, is a grassroots organization uh, gathering civilians behind your cause. And yeah, this could be done quite practical in our case. We could just encourage people to buy one symbolic share in Shell. That's where we started. We called it a green share in Shell. So yeah, we started a website where you could buy one share in Shell around 30 euros by that time. And you could send an email to the CEO of Shell saying, dear Ben, dear Ben van Burden, I'm your newest shareholder. You have the power to change the world. You have 20 billion a year to spend. So you have my support to shift investments to renewables and, and help combating climate change. And we always ended with, you have our support. I think a couple of hundred people were crazy enough to do that. So in May 2015, I could go to the shareholder meeting and talk on behalf of a few hundred shareholders. Of course, I didn't tell them only had, they all had only one share, but I could say on behalf of a few hundred shareholders, we support you to change course to invest the profits from fossil fuels into renewables. And my question was, what are you waiting for? And I got a kind of lecture of the then CFO, Simon Henry, saying, yes, renewables is, is nice, but it's subsidized. We don't do subsidized business, too risky, too political. So we basically invite you to come back every year. You can ask your question again, and, and we will tell you when the time is right. So basically, see you next year. And they dusted their shoulders and said, okay, see you next year. But next, the year after, we gained enough traction, media attention, enough members that we were able to find by then five people with, let's say, a few millions and a few ideals who all bought 1 million euros in shares in Shell. So we passed the threshold of 5 million. So we could file a shareholder resolution. And that was the moment when things became serious. Uh, before that time, Shell thought, okay, we only have to listen to this guy once a year, a few minutes, we give a polite answer and, and we say, see you next year. And the other 364 days of the year, we can do whatever we like. But then we filed a very simple resolution asking them to commit to the Paris Climate Agreement. And I suppose we go into details later, but then they had to advise their shells to vote against committing to the Paris Climate Agreement. And then they had to start explaining investors already in December when we filed the resolution. And so that's when things became serious. In 2016, the Shell board advised shareholders to vote against. Normally, 99 point whatever percent follows management advice. But in our case, 2.7% voted for our shareholder resolution. So that was the moment we thought, okay, we have something which we can interest investors for. 2.7% sounds like Very small, but if you take into account that all the other resolutions get more than 99%, and you also take into account that still a few billion of shares, few billion euros in shares, 
then you know you are onto something and you can see that a few investors were ready to support this and, and saw the importance of that. So that's why we started building our organization, 2.7%, year later, 6%. And that was the moment. Then we apparently had passed the threshold that Shell started taking our requests serious. Building up on the experience with interacting with Shell, how did you expand this onto other oil and gas companies? After we basically had proven with Shell that only with a few percent of the shareholders, just 6%, you can have an enormous influence, we, we started expanding to other oil majors. So basically we said, okay, let's replicate this proven approach at our other oil majors. We could easily claim that the approach was proven because in 2016 and 17, Shell said to their shareholders, what Follow This is asking is unreasonable because they're asking us, and now we have to go into the technicalities. Follow This is asking us to reduce emissions in line with the Paris Climate Agreement. That's all fine. But they're also asking us to reduce emissions of our products, the so-called scope three emissions. So it's in climate change speak or jargon, scope one and two are your own emissions. Scope three are the emissions caused when your customers use your products. And the initial answer of Shell in 2070 was, follow this is asking an unreasonable question because we have no responsibility for what our customers do with our products. I sometimes, when I lost my patients, said, I think they burn it. So it is your responsibility. But they thought they could get away with that. But then more than 6%, 6.3% voted for our resolution. And apparently, taking into mind that all the other resolutions get 99%, North Korean outcomes, I always call it, the 6.3% was enough for Shell in 2017. By the end of 2017, they set an ambition to reduce their scope three emissions. It was a very weak ambition. It was for 2050. It was only halving their emissions while we need to be at zero in 2015. But it was a, a really a, a big deal for the entire oil industry because one oil major, and, and we have to give credit to Shell that they were the first oil major to take scope three responsibility. And that's really passing the Rubicon because then you accept responsibility. So that happened at the end of 2017. Uh, 2018, we filed again at Shell. Shell's, Shell basically proved they had responded to our resolution by saying, now the same resolution is not unreasonable anymore. Now it's unnecessary. But then again, 6% voted for our resolution. So they, they thought they were off the hook by making this promise for the distant future, and they were not. And then we decided at the end of uh, 2018, okay, we've proven this, this approach works. One of the defense lines of Shell was always, why only us? It's not fair. There are so many oil majors, and why do you only ask us to reduce emissions? And we always said, yeah, we have to start somewhere. Uh, we're, we, we were a, a small organization. But now we're going to also do the same with BP and Equinor. And that's what we did in, uh, in 2019. And they responded in the exact same pattern as Shell. First, they told us and the shareholders, your request to reduce emissions for scope three product emissions is unreasonable. So shareholders, please vote against this. At BP, 8% didn't do that, voted for a resolution. At Equinor, 12% voted for a resolution, so more than at Shell before. And they also responded in exact the same way, making a promise for the far, for the distant future. 2050, we will reduce our emissions 
for all, all scopes. But then we could enter in a serious conversation with them. So the response, so the response always goes through the same pattern. Thank you, Mark. How has your interaction been with the other institutional investors trying to get them on board with your shareholder resolutions? Yeah, we, we had a lot of engagement with them. What we heard a lot in the beginning was, yeah, scope three is not the responsibility of uh, any company. So we vote against your resolution. Luckily, a couple of them were brave enough to vote for a resolution. They compelled Shell to set this scope three ambition. And by, from that moment on, a response I also often heard is, yes, we have such a good relationship with this company. If we vote for the follow this resolution against management advice, Shell will shut the door and we will have no influence at all anymore. This turned out not to be true because the, the, the investors who vote for our resolutions have more, uh, more engagement than ever because Shell wants to convince them and, and, and BP and Equinor that they should vote against. So that's that's not the case. And, and I think after five years of campaigning, we more or less have proved that engagement only works with consequences. And one of the consequences is, of course, voting. It's not very convincing when you tell an oil major that they need to reduce emissions. And then at the moment you have to vote for it, you vote against it. Then they don't take you serious. So more and more investors realize this. But... More important, more and more investors realize that climate change is such a huge threat to all their assets, all their billions. So not only their billions in the oil and gas industry, but also their billions they invested in real estate in coastal areas or in agriculture. Climate change, if it goes on like now, it will have a devastating effect on the world economy and therefore a devastating effect on all the billions they are trusted with by pensioners and savers. And therefore, they vote for our resolutions in yeah, higher and higher numbers. So the decision-making has really shifted from we vote company by company what's best for the company and what's best for the company is most of the time what the company tells us which is best for them to what's best for our entire portfolio. Uh, it's key that climate change is curbed within the, Paris, within the goal of the Paris Climate Agreement, preferably 1.5 degrees. So therefore, we're going to vote for these resolutions. And to take the example of Shell, as I told you, we started with 2.7%. It doubled to 6%. Later, it doubled to 14%. And now it's already at 30%, 3.0. So one third of the shareholders votes for change, despite all the promises the company makes. So that was a huge signal last May at the AGM season. And a week after that, after one third of the shareholders told Shell that they need to do re reduce emissions this decade and not in the distant future, a Dutch judge told them exactly the same. As you know, the, there was a court case in the Netherlands by Friends of the Earth Netherlands against Shell. The Dutch court ruled that Shell must decrease emissions not in 2050, but this next 10 years. I recommend all the listeners to check out the follow this website because there's a lot of interesting content. And regarding communicating with investors, you have an interesting term on the website called Goldilocks Trojan Horse. And I, I would like you to deep dive into that. But also, I would like to ask you, 
uh, how are the institutional investors also helping you out? For example, Climate Action 100 Plus has a net zero company benchmark. And I've seen that you've been using that also in your reporting. Exactly. Yeah. We sometimes refer to our resolution as Goldilocks Trojan Horse. Of course, we want these companies to stop investing in more fossil fuels and start investing in renewables. And that would mean a tremendous acceleration of the energy transition. Imagine that these companies, sometimes 15, sometimes 25 billion a year, year, if they would spend that on building wind farms on the North Sea, solar panel parks in the Sahara, investing in electric renewable transport, you name it. These companies have a, have a global reach, a global political reach, enormous project management expertise. So imagine that these companies would speed it up. That would be, I think that's the only way to curb climate change. So we need, that's, that's a discussion I sometimes have with other NGOs. I really think we need the oil and gas industry. We need them to change. Without the oil and gas industry, if we leave the oil and gas industry doing what they've done for the past 100 years, we'll end up in a four or five degrees world with devastating consequences. So we need them. But shareholders need to to push them uh, to do so. The only thing is, in a shareholder resolution, you cannot ask that this directly. Because then shareholders will say, we don't want to sit in the board seats. It's up to the board to make strategic decisions. It's up to the board to make investment decisions. So we're not about we're not gonna give prescriptive advice. So uh, big institutional investors don't want to vote for resolutions that are too prescriptive. Therefore, I call it Goldilocks. Not a resolution should not be too prescriptive. On the other hand, it shouldn't be too fake because if it's too fake, yeah, then it means nothing. Therefore, we came up in 2017 with the idea to ask for Paris-aligned targets. That's not prescriptive. It's not micromanagerial. It's company-wide. But the consequences, and therefore, we also call it the Trojan horse, and let's call it the glass Trojan horse because everybody can see through it. If you set targets that are truly aligned with the Paris Climate Agreement, covering all your emissions, you can only conclude that these targets should be emission reductions, substantial emission reductions in the next decade, then the only conclusion can be that you have to shift your investments from fossil fuels to renewables. But it's not literally in our resolution. So regarding your website, you have one phrase where you say they have the brains and they have the billions. Yeah. And I've seen that you have a framework called SATI, Scope 3 Ambitions, Targets, Investments, Emissions. Yeah. And you conduct a lot of research and you've also published an analysis of the climate plans for Chevron, uh, Equinor, yeah. BP, and so on. How do you conduct this research? And going back to the Trojan horse, how do you present it to them? Yeah, thank you for, for studying our website so thoroughly. We have indeed a framework, which we call the SATI framework. I have a friend, consultancy business, who said, if you, if you want to have a good, ask them for a good strategy, ask them, think of a good acronym. And it was quite easy to, to come to that acronym because we think there are five steps to take. That's why we call it the SATI framework. It starts with an S. It starts with taking responsibility for scope three. That's a key step every oil major has to take. All, most European oil majors, thanks to our resolutions, thanks to the support for our resolution, have taken that step. Scope three. In the US, the oil majors are still talking about reducing scope one and two and increasing scope three. 
saying we don't have responsibility for Scopetree. So that's step one. Then there needs to be an ambition on Scopetree. That's that's the a typical path oil majors set. But that's not enough. It needs to be a Paris consistent target. So therefore the T. So we're already halfway. So Scopetree, ambitions on three, targets that are truly Paris consistent. And only with these targets, they can take the fourth step, which is the I from investments, Paris consistent investments. And we think that this can only be proven by a radical shift from investments in fossil fuels to investments in renewables. And if if that step is taken, then the final outcome will be achieved. And that is reducing emissions. So the E from emissions. So therefore, SATI. Uh, if you look at the oil majors worldwide, the ones who have had our resolutions for the last couple of years and where investors voted for the resolutions are now at step two. They have ambitions, but they're all for the distant future. And, and they don't have short-term and medium-term targets at the Paris Alliance. So therefore, they don't have the, the right investments. So when you look in SAT framework, you will see that the U.S. oil companies are nowhere near the first step. And the European oil majors are already at, at the second step. But if you look at the investments, there's not much difference. So you, can also, you could also say that the Americans are at least honest about their, their plans. I'm a member of Gen Z, and we're, we're growing increasingly frustrated with the lack of action that's necessary yeah. uh, to combat climate change. Yeah. And uh, we see that these changes are happening at a relatively slow pace. And I'm a big admirer of the work that you do, Mark, with all of this. And I see a lot of potential. How are we supposed to interpret these leaders? For example, some of these leaders need to be replaced with uh, leaders that have uh, knowledge in the climate industry. Some of these leaders need to reassess their investment targets. How are we supposed to interpret that as the future generations? Because they come from a different philosophy, different background, different education. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. This, this, there's a tremendous difference between your generation um, and the leadership in the industry, but also in, uh, in politics. So, of course, the biggest difference is that you will see the end of this century. So you will fully experience the, the consequences of the decision my generation takes today. The best thing you can do about it is make yourself heard in, in as many ways as possible and try to influence them, in our case, as a shareholder. And basically, as uh, you can influence the oil industry in two ways, by becoming a, a green shell or in follow this. So we go to the shareholder meetings on your behalf. We file the resolutions on your behalf. We ask them to change on your behalf. And we ask pension funds to vote for this fair ask, as we always call it. It's uh, the oil majors try to convince investors that we, we ask something unreasonable or unnecessary. It's just a fair ask. We just ask them to to prevent devastating climate change, to, to join the efforts to achieve the Paris Climate Agreement, which is signed by almost every government in the world. So it's, it's just a fair ask, but the leadership of these oil majors have been successful in oil and gas for the last 30 years, most of the time, and they can't imagine a world without oil and gas. So that's up to your generation to convince them of and to help them with creative uh, solutions because the... the the issue is when you get older, you lose your creativity if you don't practice it. And another thing your generation can do, of course, is address their pension funds, saying, okay, I have a job now. Myself or my employer puts money in, in my pension fund. 
I want this money to be a force for good and not supporting climate change anymore. So that's a big movement in the Netherlands and I think worldwide asking pension funds, please divest. And if you don't divest from the fossil fuel industry, at least use your power. And that includes uh, voting. But you're right, there's, there's a huge gap. There's, there's a huge gap between the thinking in uh, in your generation and uh, let's call it uh, my my generation, the people above uh, 50. So the IPC6 assessment working group one report was released this week. Yeah. And follow this, we released a statement on this. Could you tell us more about it, please? Yes, we of course uh, also anticipated this report. We hoped it had strong words in there. It had, but we didn't want to respond like Boris Johnson, who who literally said, this is a wake-up call. I I wonder what he was doing in the last uh, decades. If you are now talking about a wake-up call, yeah, we're laughing about it, but it's, of course, terrible that that the prime minister of of a big country says, now now I have my wake-up call. But okay, so we we didn't want to say something about this report, like this is a wake-up call, everybody should take action. We know already from 90... 88, that we need to take action. So every action is long due. But w- uh, what we got from the report is that it's that the scientists now, and, and backed by the politicians who, who approved this this report, say we need immediately, immediate, rapid, and large-scale reductions. Otherwise, the 1.5 degrees goal is beyond reach. And that's a very important message to the oil industry, who now finally are responding to climate change, finally are talking about it. They didn't want to talk about it up to 2015, 2016, 10 years after Inconvenient Truth, decades after they knew. But okay, they're talking about it, but now they're talking about a gradual transition because if we move too fast, our companies are in danger. So, And I think this report made it crystal clear that any oil major, any company who is talking about a gradual transition, can't be taken serious. If you look at BP, to take another example, they have a new CEO who's saying, I get the picture, I get the message, we're going to be a force for good, we're going to drive the energy transition. But to do so, we first we need the next 10 years to make a lot of cash and market share in fossil fuels. We're going to increase our emissions to be ready for the energy transition after 2030. That's not an option anymore. If they wanted to have a slow transition, they should have started in 1988. Because they have postponed the transition for decades, initially by deliberately spreading doubt about the science, they were all a member of the American Petroleum Association. The American Petroleum Association deliberately sponsored climate denial to keep the debate going. They literally copied Big Tobacco's playbook because they did not want to change. Now, finally, they are forced to change. Yeah, because they have postponed it so long. They need they need to rapidly change. That's There's nothing we can change about that. So I have two more questions. And yeah, then please go ahead. We can close the interview. Looking at 2021, would you say it's a successful year? I've seen the numbers on your website. For example, in the US uh, with uh, Philips 66 and uh, Chevron 80% and 61% respectively, yeah. the investors supported the follow this climate proposals but also what's very interesting is that total in-house there was a 92 percent support what do you see the the coming years will it become more and more easy to convince these oil and gas companies to 
agree with the follow this resolution and to align themselves with the Paris climate targets? They have to eventually because their shareholders want it and it's becoming more and more visible that their shareholders want it. That's the main purpose of shareholder democracy that you visibly show, evidently show that the shareholders want change. But to summarize the 2021 AGM season, in Europe, it has been very successful because all the companies where we filed a resolution, the votes more than doubled. For example, Shell, we were at 14%. Now we're at 30%. BP, we were at 8%. Now we're at 21%. Despite all the new strategies they all came with, every all major came with a new strategy this year, and basically, there the narrative was okay. We know we have to act on climate change, so we make a nice promise for the distant future. We're going to be net zero by 2050. So now, leave us alone to implement our new strategy, which will increase emissions. And it's it's great news that the investors, more and more investors, are not buying it. So that's Europe. Then in the US, basically there was there were two very hopeful developments. First of all, that we got our resolutions on the ballot. Anyway, we didn't succeed in that in the Trump years. In the U.S., the regulations are somewhat different from Europe. In the U.S., you can file a resolution, but then the company can ask the SEC, the watchdog of, of these companies, the Securities and Exchange Committee, they can request the SEC to not put it on a, to a shareholder vote. For example, because it's too fake, too micromanagerial, or they already implemented it. They hire a big law firm explaining that shareholders should not vote about this. And in the Trump years, we also filed resolutions and the SEC agreed with Chevron, Exxon, the big oil companies that it should not be on the ballot. Biden was inaugurated uh, in January, but he wasted no time, put new people in the SEC and they immediately took the right decision. So in February, they allowed our resolutions. So that's already a big win that they were on the ballot. And then to our surprise, we got three consecutive majorities for the resolution. So at Chevron, ConocoPhillips, and Philips 66. Philips 66, even 80%, 80%, which is also a very strong signal to these oil majors that they now finally have to take scope three responsibility and decrease emission. So yeah, a lot of strong signals to the oil industry that they really have to change rapidly. We really hope they see the writing on the wall, but the signs that the leadership of the oil industry has fully understood the message, are not hopeful yet. So investors really need to exert far more pressure. Thank you very much for this great interview. To close off the meeting, how are the listeners supposed to join Follow This? Do they buy the shares? Do they have to buy shares in each of the other companies? Do they pay membership fees? And how can they follow Follow this. Yeah, everybody can support Follow This. It can, it can be a part of this movement. That's that's the, the whole idea that we are a, a grassroots movement of green shareholders. It's a little bit counterintuitive to buy a share in a big oil company. But as soon as you've grasped the the purpose, the idea, change the system by entering it. It's a great way to help to curb climate change. On our website, you can simply buy one green share in Shell, BP. Chevron uh, or Total, all at the current share price. And you can choose if you, if I think the cheapest is uh, is uh, BP at around nine, nine euros. I think Chevron is around 50. But then you are a green shareholder in this company. Please send an email to the CEO of this company saying, I'm your shareholder now and I want you to 
change. You have my support. And then we will go to the shareholder meeting on behalf of you. And, and, and please try to convince your friends, family to also join this, this growing movement. We are over 7,000 now, but it would be great if we can pass the 10,000, 20,000, and then on a global scale. Mo- most of our shareholders are in the Netherlands still. So in the US, it would be great if people buy this green share in Chevron. It's, it's not a donation. It's You own this share. You can sell it again, but you are part of the forces who are compelling the oil industry to change. Because yeah, I'm convinced that the oil industry can make or break the Paris Climate Agreement. We need to support them, to compel them, and if needed, force them to make a very immediate change. Thank you very much, Mark. You've you convinced me to sign up with Follow This and buy a share in these oil and gas companies and hopefully align these companies towards the Paris Climate Targets and move forward. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You're most welcome. Thank you so much uh, for your great questions, Jonas. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Climate Finance Podcast. For future episodes, please join our mailing list on www.climatefinance.xyz. I repeat, www.climatefinance.xyz. See you at the next episode.